Welcome, everybody, to the University of Applied Research and Development's Educators Podcast. I'm delighted to have Dr. John Shimbari, who is a senior education consultant from the States. He's recently been working with Teaching Matters in Fordham University. Hi, Dr. John. Hi, Craig. How are you? Can't believe how incredible I am. Excellent. Likewise. Wonderful. Hey, look, I'd love for you to tell us what you're doing now in your role as an education consultant. Sure. So as an education consultant, I will network or go out into the field in schools. Uh, Now with COVID, a lot of my work is obviously virtual, but I'll go into the field and support school leaders as well as teachers on improving academics. So that work could be improving the curriculum, working on instructional techniques that are really going to help all students learn, and or it could... um, actually involve assessment. Are we really assessing what it is we say we're assessing? And how do we use that assessment to help, again, students learn better? And so how long have you been in this independent role? Well, I've been in education for about 25 years, uh, but more, usually more so for the bulk of my career in administrative positions within school systems or school networks but I've been an independent consultant for the last three and a half, four years. Okay, so why did you choose to do that rather than staying in an organization? Sure, so I very much enjoy uh, working on different projects with different schools, different organizations, and consulting really allows me the opportunity to choose the projects that I wanna work on uh, with the schools that I wanna work with, And in addition to that, when you are a consultant, you do have the opportunity to work with many different networks of educators. So I have found that my own knowledge of best practices has really increased being a part of various networks. Right, got it. So is this related to your doctoral research that you've done? Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So I did go and get my doctorate in educational leadership. So while at the time my specific thesis research was on school climate in small secondary magnet schools or theme-based schools, because at the time theme-based schools were uh, a new innovation in education. I was a principal of a magnet high school in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, So I was really interested to see if other small magnet schools we're operating in a similar vein, if you will. Uh, I wouldn't say that what I'm specifically doing now is directly tied to that research, but obviously when one is going for a doctorate in educational leadership, you know, you are looking at ways to improve educational outcomes for students. And as an academic leader, how are you bringing all the stakeholders together, parents, students, Uh, teachers, the community at large, how are you bringing all of those folks together so that way we are achieving academic growth for our students? So in that vein, I would say most definitely my work reaching out to schools now is very much tied to that, which is school improvement overall. So just so we understand, because we have a very large international audience, can you tell us about theme-based schools and magnet schools and what they are? Sure. So about 15 years ago, uh, there was a thought that, well, I mean, there's always been a thought that we should innovate education. 
So about 10, 15 years ago, the thought was, how do we really invest students in their own learning? What is it that we could do that makes learning more exciting for students? And one idea that came to the fore was magnet schools. And what magnet schools are, they're theme-based schools that have an overall theme related to the school as a whole. And then you teach all of your subject areas around that theme. So for example, I was principal of American History High School in, in Newark, New Jersey. And so we hope to attract students that, again, were interested in history, and American history, international history, but really we still, like any other public school or state school, if you will, had to ensure that we were meeting English language standards, that we were meeting science standards, math standards. So I don't want to give the impression that every single unit of study is integrated with, with U.S. history in that case, but many were. And there are a lot of opportunities in education to do thematic units or theme-based content and teach all your subjects around that. So when there was that opportunity, Craig, to combine subject areas and teach, teach in a way that showed students that subjects are not concrete, separate entities, but really life is you know, a hodgepodge of all of our learning come together. We try to we try to do that. So that's what a theme based or a magnet school is, because it's like you're attracting students as if you were a magnet. I'd be really interested for you to share about how you hire staff for such a school environment. Yeah. So when I was hiring staff, I'm looking for I was looking for people who are collaborative. So if I heard uh aspiring teachers talk about how they learned from each other or they got ideas from each other uh they were high on my list and actually whether or not it's a magnet school or not that is a quality that a lot of schools in general are looking for now in their teachers especially as more and more schools adopt professional learning communities where teams of teachers are looking at student data and then determining well, what as a school do we do with this data? How are we going to use it to improve outcomes for our students? So even though this might have been novel 15 years ago, I don't think looking for teachers that are collaborative or who are willing to work in a professional learning community environment is as novel now as it was then. I think, thankfully, it's becoming much more commonplace. Interesting that you didn't say, I was looking for, for history teachers who... You know, you didn't talk about content. You talked about interpersonal characteristics, transferable skills. Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm still hiring folks, you know, for their ability to teach ELA, their ability to teach math. I mean, if they're a math teacher, I still want a math teacher. But if they're open, like you say, Craig, to working with others, we could develop an, an excellent integrated unit, if you will. Uh, I would say the other thing I really look for in aspiring teachers or really in educators at all, I mean, for a whole or in the whole, uh, is a commitment to literacy. Because I do find that we are all literacy teachers. We need to be. Now, if some of us are lucky to work in um, higher socioeconomic communities, 
students do tend to come into school with a larger uh, lexical set, with more vocabulary behind them. But for those of us working where there might be inequities or, or with populations that have been marginalized, which is often the case in urban education where I do a lot of my work, students are coming in without the, the rich language that, you know, their, their, their peers just five miles down the road in the suburbs might be coming in with. So it is really important, again, for all teachers, math teachers, science teachers, to come in with the knowledge that they are whole child teachers. And that in addition to their subject area, they do need to work together, like you're mentioning, for the good of all. And they do also have to figure out what are those other ways they need to help their students learn the material. So being able to teach vocabulary and language as a math teacher, as a science teacher, is also very important. It's really interesting. So collaboration, um, literacy, and thinking of the child as a whole child rather than just seeing them as a subject receiver. I really like that. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to go back a little bit. You said about your doctorate being focused on school climate. In your, in your experience, what are some key factors that create a healthy school climate? Sure. Well, again, what we were talking about before with professional learning communities, I, I believe a school that is connected internally as well as externally to the community is very important. Uh, schools shouldn't operate in bubbles. Uh, 21st century learning tells us and 21st century jobs tell us that students are going to need to work together. So the school community needs to model or represent the skills that it is saying students need to have to be successful in their futures. So a, school a good school community is, again, one that is collaborative, one that allows students to shine, to, for them to show their learning, their knowledge, have them a part of the process of their own school growth. Uh, I think that's important for a, a healthy school climate. One that celebrates success uh, of staff, of students, of the community at large, but yet one that doesn't shirk away from failure, but looks at failure as, again, a way to improve or to grow or to move forward. Again, skills that we're all, we all need in general uh, to, to, to do better the next time around. Uh, I think that's important as well. And again, a school that teaches to the whole child. You know, you could be a science teacher, but if your student is not mentally there for whatever reason, um, home problems, uh, problems in the community, they're tired, they're not eating well, you know, whatever the reason is, if they're not fully present in school, they're not gonna be able to learn science, math, or ELA. So again, I come back to this theme of teaching the whole child and celebrating the whole child. And what does that mean? Does it mean bringing community entities into the process to help your students and their families thrive. Uh, we're seeing more of that, particularly in urban environments here in, in the United States. They're called community schools, where again, so many of your resources can be pulled together to help your school community. Now, I will tell you in the era of COVID, where many of our schools are shut down, this has proven to be a challenge because schools are often the place where 
particularly marginalized communities can get services. So with the shutdown of schools, uh, the community school model has been a little bit challenged, but I do believe in general, the more that your services are combined at your site or near your site, where again, your school is part of the community outside of your building, I think that that is important as well as part of um, establishing a healthy community. So regardless of the socioeconomic level, you think a community approach with community services, you think that's part of a, a good school culture? Definitely. Um, because also we didn't talk about it, but as students get a little bit older, especially mm. if they're in high school, mm. having these community resources in your school can also provide opportunities for your students to get work experience, internship mm. experience. So really looking at or expanding on the work study model. I think that's an important part of community as well uh, as your students go through the education process. Mm -hmm. and, and overall, Craig, I would also say a school community, a good school community, should be one that, again, talks about college and career readiness from kindergarten all the way up to through 12th grade, as we call it here in the States. I know you might uh, call your grades by different things in different parts of the world. So what's one strategy or, or some ways that we can do that right from a young age, have the eye on college readiness and career readiness? How can we do that? Sure. Sure. Well, when we look at not only college, college enrollment, but college success, we're finding particularly in, in communities where perhaps the educational opportunities have not been as great as in other places. Students might be hopefully enrolling in college, but often they lack the independent skills to really advocate for themselves. Uh, they also might not be as ready with the content as students coming from other parts of, of, of a country might be. And there's also um, the, um, the belief, unfortunately, in students who come from marginalized communities when they enter college, it's almost as if they're imposters. It's called imposter syndrome, where even though they have every right to be there and might actually be even more qualified than the person sitting next to them because their population has not been traditionally represented in that university setting, they might feel that they don't actually belong. So if we look at, um, you know, we look at enrollment in universities coming from urban environments, and we actually look at college success rates of that same community or that same population, it, it's a very sharp drop off. Uh, we need to do better with not only getting our students to university, but through university. So to specifically answer your question, for a start throughout K-12, develop those 21st century learning capacities. Really celebrate grit. Really celebrate persistence. Celebrate self-advocacy. And, you know, okay, as a student, this is where I am academically, and this is what I need to do to move to the next step. Really embrace and develop self-reliance. I think that's number one. Number two, even from a young age, in your early primary years, you could bring in people from the community to talk about the careers that they have. Talk about what they had to do to persevere 
to get to the next level. So although before we talked about the role of work-study programs, particularly on the secondary or the high school level, again, in the early grades, you could still start introducing these 21st century concepts and start really utilizing your parent community, the community at large, to show children all the different things you can do in life if you are educated. So I got um, building self-reliance and then building in programs that have career role models, whether that's parents or people from the community. Exactly. Yeah. Love it. I mean, there are many ways. Those are just some of them. Yeah. That's really good. And I think that's achievable regardless of the context from K to 12, you can build in these things at appropriate, appropriate times and even link them in, I would imagine, or think it, whatever the subjects are that are being taught, make it a cross-curricular thing where the person can demonstrate how, as you said at the very beginning, no one thing is ever by itself. You're doing everything. Life is just everything together. You're bringing in all of those skills. Exactly. Yeah. And Craig, it's interesting you say that there are, uh, many school systems and school networks, whether they're charter networks here in the States or public traditional schools that are doing just that. So when they are developing their curriculum or looking at math curriculum or ELA curriculum or science curriculum, there are the content specific standards, yes, but right along those content, right along with those content specific standards, they are putting in the life skill standards that go along with, with whatever, not only the students are learning in terms of content, but how the students are learning that material. So you're exactly right. The life skill standards fit right along with that and should progress just like our content standards are uh, progressive. Our life skill standards should be progressive as well. So, for example, what you expect a kindergarten student or an early primary student mm. to know and be able to explain in terms of grit and perseverance would, I believe, be different from what you would expect a secondary student to be able to do and say and speak about. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, uh, KIPP, K-I-P-P, yep. And you, yes. you were just talking about grit. Yeah, just talking about grit. So, so, do you want to share some experiences from that? Yeah, so KIPP is a school network that uh, really prides itself on preparing students who can advocate for themselves, students who traditionally do come from marginalized backgrounds, uh, really prides themselves on getting those students to the college table so that way they are represented and we can move beyond this imposter syndrome that good, competent, qualified students that come from marginalized communities feel just as entitled to attend university as any one other student coming from any other socioeconomic background. Uh, it's also a, a network that believes in social justice and really ensuring that when one is looking at discipline, if you will, uh, you really look at discipline in terms of a learning experience, not a punitive experience. So uh, KIPP, at least in the Bay Area, was very uh, interested in ensuring that instead of a punitive disciplinary model, there was a restorative justice practice model. So to your question before, Craig, about 
what makes a good school community, I would add that to the, to the mix as well. And I would say school communities that, again, learn from their mistakes, as we mentioned before, students that learn from their mistakes, but it's done in a way that is restorative, that the victim has a say in the process because, you know, if you, if you transgress, having somebody engaged in a dialogue with you about that, I think is going to have much more of an impact on, you know, whether or not you do whatever it is you did again, than maybe being suspended or sitting in the, the principal's office. That to me does not have the same teaching value as again, engaging with each other and talking about how your actions affect others and how their actions affect you. You know, we've covered a lot in this short period of time from staffing to climate to college readiness. Um, just what you're talking about then about social justice and restoration. I love all of that. This is like a, an M-Ed in 20 minutes. Just before we wrap up, because I've really appreciated the time, could you share some career advice for aspiring leaders who may be in our Masters of Education program? Sure. Uh, definitely become a collaborative leader. So, uh, yep, you're there, Craig. I'm sorry, I lost you there for a second. So definitely figure out how to become a collaborative leader, a transformative leader. There is leadership or there needs to be leadership on all levels of an organization. So find ways to engage your students, your staff, and the community at large in the decision-making process, processes, excuse me, in your school. Uh, if we're talking about the 21st century being a time of collaboration, your school needs to exhibit that, needs to model that. So I would say at heart as a leader, figure out the processes and the ways that again, you could have leadership decision-making occurring at all levels of, of the, the school hierarchy. That would be my overall, uh, one of my overall uh, points of advice. The other point of advice I would have is to be open. Listen to your community, listen to what the needs are, what the, what the stated needs are, and figure out how to embed that in your community as well. So really fostering a climate where you're getting that impact or that feedback, I should say, on an ongoing basis. And also go out and seek that feedback from your teachers, from your students. Set up specific times where you can talk with your teachers one-on-one. -on -one. With your, if you're a district representative, with your principals one-on-one. -on -one. And keep that, keep that time sacred. Do your other meetings around those times that you've set aside for specific individuals. That work um, actually, Craig, comes from uh, Bambrick Santoyo in the book, Building Le uh, Leveraging Leadership. So highly recommend picking up that book or if you could find that book somewhere. Uh, I think that that's a great book for new administrators coming into the field as leaders. Thank you for that, John. I was going to say, is there a book or a model or a theory or a writer that you would suggest? So I've got that down, Leveraging Leadership. And the author was? His last name is Bambrick Santoyo. Bambrick and then Santoyo. I apologize. I don't remember his first name. Okay. Uh, I should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's, another book, there's another book I would recommend. I mean, I know that these are United States-centric books. So 
some of the advice might be applicable, some of it might not be applicable, depending on, you know, where your aspiring leaders uh, are going to be working. But another great resource is uh, a book by a gentleman named Kim Marshall called um, uh, I'm to, Rethinking Education or Rethinking Educational Supervision. The title is something like that, but the author is definitely Kim Marshall. He also talks about how leaders can reach out to their staff, to the school, that again, it's really important for the leader to be very visible in their school. I really like that you said make that time sacred because often it's something that's on the calendar to do once a year or twice a year and we come in and it's, it's a routine and then all that information that's gathered is put into a manila folder, sits in the filing cabinet, never gets revisited until it's on the calendar again. It seems to be a, a worthless process, but even the mere fact of making that time sacred where it's not moved, it's not rushed, it's not moved off the calendar because something else happens. Making it sacred and important can do wonders, I think, for school climate. Indeed. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know if I, if I believe like the once or twice a year is a total waste. In the States, we might call it a dog and pony show because it is, it's, right. I think it's good to show when somebody knows, for example, like in the case of admins going into a classroom, you know, it's, it's, you're, you know, it's coming, you're going to give it your best. So as an administrator, it tells me under ideal conditions, what somebody can do. Mm -hmm. So I do like seeing that, uh, but I also like going into classrooms for five minutes every day, just to see what real instruction is like. And that's going to help me to develop a relationship with the teacher mm. to the fact, oh, I walked in very quickly and you were doing X, Y, Z. I loved how you were providing scaffolds for students when, you know, they were reading the text. You had the key vocabulary that was going to help them learn the material available. Love it. It helps me to develop that rapport with the teacher much more so than just engaging with them once or twice a year. So that's when I go out to the classrooms or as when I went out to the classrooms as an administrator. But yes, also having sacred, a sit down time where somebody comes to your office or you go to their classroom and that's their time to share with you mm -hmm. what's working for them, what's not working for them and for you to figure out how you're gonna be the best leader for them. Because just like as teachers, no two students are alike, no two teachers are alike. And, you know, you have to figure out how are you going to, how is what you're saying going to resonate with this adult teacher standing across from me? Do people, things, different things resonate with different people. So, yes, I think you have to go out more into the classrooms more than just at official times. And, yes, you have to have an official time for those feedback conversations. Uh, once a week. And if your schedule is incredibly hectic, maybe once every two weeks. But I wouldn't let it go any further than that. So that way, it's not just what you're observing, but again, having that feedback conversation. And again, truly making it a conversation that's two-way, that's really going to help, I believe, uh, any administrator develop their relationships with the people teaching our students. 
Dr. John, thank you so much for your time. I've got a couple of pages of notes. Anyone watching will get great value from this. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate that.